Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Men with Jim and Jay, where we chat about history, culture, health, politics, religion, sex, sports, with a dash of Gen X pop culture thrown in to try to understand why men are breaking down and what can be done about it. Today, we're going to be chatting about gratitude as well as men and work. And we're going to close things out today with picking teams about best chucks. So definitely stick around for that. How's your week so far, Jim? I feel like best chucks is the best bait we've ever dangled in front of our audience. (laughs) Like stick around because if nothing else, you will get to hear us pick the best chucks. Best chucks. Yeah, no, if you if I mean, you think, I suppose people can fast forward and, and zip ahead these days. It's not like you got to suffer through. No, no, you don't have to listen to the whole podcast. You can go you, right to Chuck right now. If, if you, you want. just want to hear best Chucks, you can also yeah. listen to the show backwards. Mm-hmm. Ooh, we should start encoding memories a la 1970s classic rock. Yeah, like if you play it Satanic backwards. messages, yeah. <laughs> I had a friend who was like at one point in the 80s was into like all the conspiracy theories surrounding heavy metal music and mm-hmm. devil worship and right, listening right. to if you listen to records backwards, it told you to kill yourself. And right. And I just remember thinking that seems far fetched. It, it was actually far fetched. Yeah, no, it was out. very far fetched. <laughs> It not only seemed that way, it actually was. Yeah, it was it was a whole thing. The 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 satanic scare of the eighties and maybe into the nineties a little bit. I think they call it the satanic panic just for purposes of rhyming. But. It rhymes. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, like KISS, the band KISS was like Knights in Satan's service. <laughs> ACDC was Antichrist Devil Child or Devil oh, Children or something. You know, it was like all yeah. the things. And I think um, Staircase to Heaven, maybe, if you play it backwards. Sounded Stairway like to st- Heaven, you mean? Stairway to Heaven, Staircase. <laughs> Escalator to Heaven. That song said, like, here's to my sweet Satan or something, if you played it backwards. I never understood the whole play it backwards thing. Like, that never impressed me much. Like. Okay, but I'm not listening to it backwards. I'm just listening to it forwards. <laughs> right. Noth- there's no reason for me to think that. But you don't understand does... how subliminal messaging works, Jim. right? Like I, your brain also hears things backwards at the same yes. time. Right. Like that would be awesome if we had brains capable of hearing sounds simultaneously forwards and backwards, but that's not how it works. So it's like that's subliminal advertising is a thing. It's not clear how effective it was, but it was a thing that people were doing. But yeah, that's not what that was. No, it's not subliminal if it's backwards. Yeah. I never understood what was what was so scary about that. People think like if you just throw in random words or images, then it's like gets into our subconscious and then we all yeah. are devil worshiping, which at this point, you know, bring it on. Bring on the devil worship. <laughs> if worshiping the Lord has brought this current situation mm-hmm. into being, then it's right. like, let's switch it up. You know, let's how's try work- something. How's worshiping the Lord working for you? Yeah. <laughs> it's brought nothing but more tornadoes than any other country <laughs> must suffer on this planet, right. as we pre- as has been previously noted. All right. Well, should we go ahead and move into our opening segment? This is a segment we call Life Moves Pretty Fast. If you don't stop and take a look at it once in a while, you could miss it. Ferris was such a genius. So much wisdom. There's a lot in Ferris that holds up. Of all the 80s movies, uh, Ferris, in terms of like holding up and rewatchability, I'll definitely put Ferris in the top five. 
Have you heard the theory that that movie is really about Cameron, that Cameron is really the star? Yes. Because he's the one who like experiences a change in his life right. where it's about Ferris his transformation. Just, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's legit. I, I feel like I was more of a Cameron, but I wanted to be a Ferris, you know? Is that a John Hughes movie? I think so. Yeah. If only there was some way for us to access that information. Yes. Written, co-produced and directed by John Hughes. Yeah. There you go. All right. There you go. So we have taken this quote from Ferris Bueller and turned it into a segment about sharing things that we're grateful for. Mm-hmm. Do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. We are uh, we're recording this in May, which is uh, May is Mother's Day. May is also the anniversary of when I was married 24 years ago. Mm. My wife and I got married. She's a couple years younger than me. So in the month of May, she graduated from college. And then two weeks later, we got married. And then two weeks later, we moved in to an intentional community with seven other people. Ooh, it was intense. It was an eventful 30-day stretch, basically. Yeah, for sure. A lot of milestones that remind me of her in the month of May. So, I'm yeah, I'm very grateful for my wife. We have been partners and best friends and spouses and parents and work colleagues and fellow students and survivors just of the world together for a long time. And she is a deeply thoughtful and compassionate person that has impacted my life. There's no doubt that I have grown as a person and as a man because of her influence. I'm definitely one of those men that fit in the category of like late to parenthood fathers. We had our first child pretty young. And I think as is often the case, the women who are carrying the child, bearing the child and bringing the child into this world. Also just, I think the way we sort of culturally arrange parental roles, mothers are often sort of thrust into like, okay, parenthood is here, let's go. And for me, I think it took uh, a couple years years before it really kicked in like whoa i'm a dad and this means life is changing and i gotta adapt and even then i think it was it was slow for me coming to uh adopt into full full full-time parenting mode and so i'm really grateful for the ways that she carried a lot of the emotional load of parenting in our family and i think eventually i caught up but it took a long time so i'm grateful for her patience with that yeah i have some regrets and apologies that i've made about that to her over the years for ways again in which i was probably late to the game but mostly i just wanted to just sort of publicly mention how grateful i am for her and again all the different roles that we've shared together Because we're in the Mother's Day, Father's Day range of time. I'm particularly thinking about parenting where she really excels, but there are obviously lots of other ways too. The other part of it is is we are are uncoupling. So we are sort of transitioning our relationship from being a married couple. Despite that transformation and transition in our relationship, we have a very strong bond and I'm, I'm really grateful for her in the past for sure, in the present most definitely, and really, although again, the nature of our relationship is changing, I anticipate that being a very strong bond and presence as well in the future, which I'm really grateful for. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. seems like you guys are moving into a new phase, but continuing to have a lot of love and care and 
mutual support for each other. Yeah, for sure. We're feeling all the feelings these days. So it's like some days it's like, yay, we're getting divorced, freedom. Other days it's like, what the hell? We're getting divorced, so sad. And some days it's both of those. And right, it's, a, right. it's a mix of things. It's definitely for the best for both of us, for our paths moving forward, but full range of emotion. Yeah, definitely. What are you finding yourself grateful for today? My partner, Jesse, invited me to go to this ceremony, which was like a cacao ceremony mm. where we partook yes. of the sacred beverage uh, yes. cacao, which is basically yes. the the plant that chocolate is made from. So that was an interesting experience, and I had not ever really done anything like that before. I mean, I've done things like it, but I hadn't done that before. And uh, it was just a really sweet experience. I didn't, I didn't have an experience of like a mind altering brilliance from the cacao, but part of the ceremony was like a lot of sort of opening up to the other people who were there and the ritual elements. And so it felt like a time to sort of connect with other people and with my partner. And there were some elements of it that I have missed since I am not a part of the church anymore. Mm -hmm. Some of those like ritual elements and community elements and just like sharing with people about your lives and, you know, that kind of stuff that has been, had been a part of my life when I was more religious, I haven't had as much. So it felt good. And I was grateful to be able to meet some new folks and connect with them in that way. And especially just to hear people's people sharing about what their hopes are and their dreams are about what they want for their lives, for their futures, for their relationships is a really beautiful thing to get to hear and be a part of. So I was just really appreciative of getting to be able to meet some of those folks and learn about them. It's interesting to hear people share. We had a, a time when people sort of shared hopes and dreams for the future. And the, the thing I found so interesting is that it, nobody was wishing for riches or fame. People really are were just like, I just want to live a simple, quiet life with the people I love and be able to eat and have a decent place to live and just be happy, you know? <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> seem like you're asking for much, but it turns out that actually yes. is quite a big ask in in our world. Yeah, absolutely. No, it feels like a it feels like a big ask in these this day and age. You know, it was just good to be with some good folks and and share that time together. The trailer for that would be like, in a world where asking for your most basic needs to be met is a big ass. (laughs) Comes a thriller unlike any other. (laughs) We should go ahead and move to our main topic of conversation today, which is men and work. We've talked about this on the podcast before a little bit. A couple of times you've mentioned the ways that masculinity boxes in men around needing to be useful, productive, and sort of forcing men into the sort of work world in ways that are not always healthy. So I think today we wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about that. I have been personally sort of on a little bit of a journey of thinking about work, reading about work. I have experienced a number of times in my life of being unemployed and trying to sort of understand how to think about the value of work, what it means for me, for us, for our culture, and especially in this context for men. So we wanted to to dive into a little bit of that. Yeah, you know, and you and I have had 
different jobs, different careers over our sort of work life, which is typical. I think we fall squarely in the norm in terms of like career changes and jobs. Over the course of all of those career decisions for me, a lot of different miniature and major existential crises occurred around like what it means to be the provider of my family, you know, a very traditional sort of masculine role, what it means to be successful, what the purpose of work is and how I can find my purpose through work. What is my true passion? And I feel like I always heard like, just find out what you're passionate about and then it'll it'll happen. You know, a job will will materialize. You can manifest a job if you just find what you're passionate for and go for it. And so all these different sort of thematic challenges and issues came up over the course of my career journey that I, I think it would be interesting to touch on today. I don't know how much that tracks with your personal work journey. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I think I, I would love to talk about work in all the different aspects. And that's part of the challenge in doing this episode is like not to get off on a bunch of tangents about work in general, but to try to keep it somewhat focused on questions around masculinity and and how being a man connects with work. Right. Our whole Western culture is incredibly focused on work. And if you think about setting up a society, how you want to set it up, two of the most important things you need to do are figure out how you're going to get stuff you need. Like, how are you going to have food and shelter and clothing and safety and all those things? And what's going to give your life sort of meaning and purpose and a sense, you know, that you're connected to something that's important. And in our culture, both of those things are work, essentially, <laughs> you know, that we work is both the only way to get stuff. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's also the thing that's supposed to give our lives meaning and purpose and direction. And so we're incredibly work centered in our in our culture. Right. And I think that connects with masculinity, particularly around being a, a provider for for yourself, for your family, is a huge element of what it has traditionally meant to be a man in our sort of modern Western society. So I think that often gets tied in with work. And I think there's a lot of feelings of inadequacy when, as a man, you're not able to get a job, keep a job, have a job that pays enough to be able to support yourself, support your family, you know, provide economically for the people you love. It feels like you're not a real man. Right. That's something that I've experienced for myself and feeling like, because I'm not able to have a high paying job, I'm not a real man. But I also recognize that the reality is there are not enough jobs in our society that pay enough money to provide for people for all men to have them. You know, I mean, apart from like men and women working, but even if it was just men working, there's not enough jobs that pay enough for all men to be able to provide. So yeah. the idea that that is somehow important to what it means to be a man just means like fundamentally, institutionally, half of the men or three quarters of the men are not going to be able to do that no matter what they do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it just seems like setting men up for failure to have that as an expectation. Yeah, I certainly identify with the the provider, you know, my thing, like for me, the core parts of masculinity when it comes to work and family are provider and protector. I don't know that my dad ever said to me, hey, 
being a man means providing and pr- providing for and protecting your family. Yeah. But I sure got that message loud and clear implicitly in a variety of ways over the course of my childhood and adolescence and young adulthood. And certainly as I sort of evolved through the different jobs and careers that I was taking, always at the forefront of my decision making was this mix of what would be fulfilling for me and can I provide for my family doing this? Yeah. And I wanted the first one desperately, but the second one was non-negotiable. I could not possibly choose something that didn't allow me to provide for my family. And I will say that was not, again, that was not because I was under explicit pressure from my wife to like, hey, whatever you're thinking about with this job change, it better be something that can pay for our lifestyle or our life. Like that's right, an, right. make sure you're taking that. And that was not happening. In fact, it was the opposite. It was like, hey, figure out what you want to do and do it and I'll support you, you know. Yeah. But I still felt like it was very drilled into my head. Find something that you want to do, but whatever it is, it better be generating a worthy level of income for the lifestyle that you and your family want to continue living. And just, yeah, not an option to not be able to do that was I'm not a man. Yeah. It was a mask. I can remember feeling emasculated when I felt like I wasn't going to be able to do that or I wasn't doing that. Yeah. I I think those two things, the sort of finding your purpose or finding a job that's meaningful to you or something you want to do or feel like is contributing in some way to making the world better, the sort of purpose aspect of work and the providing piece, making enough money to support yourself, support your family. Those two things are essential in terms of how we think about work and masculinity. But the problem is, if I know five people that have both of those, I would be shocked. Out of the you know 500 people that I'm connected to, if five of them feel like they have a job that gives them purpose and meaning and they feel like they're really happy with and qualified for and also pays them enough money that they feel like they can live on, support their family. So I I just think to make that the sort of expectation for everyone is just a recipe for everyone feeling crappy all the time or feeling emasculated or feeling frustrated that they can't accomplish those things. I also think there's a third thing in our society that is somewhat connected with masculinity as well, which is the idea that hard work is kind of intrinsically valuable. So even if I have a job that doesn't provide either of those other two things, like I have a job that doesn't provide me meaning and purpose, and it also doesn't pay me enough money to be able to support myself and my family, I should still work hard at that job because working hard is inherently valuable. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that is another piece I think that is deeply corrosive and feels bad is like this sense of just lazy. I'm lazy if I don't work or if I grumble about work or whatever, there's a sense of like, just be a man, buck up, get out there, do, you know, do the thing, even though it's miserable, even though it it's abusive, it's, it's exploitative, whatever that's, you just got to fucking shut up and do the work. That's what men do. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, at least in the American context, fueled by the like Horatio Alger rags to riches. If you work hard, you will 
become successful. You will acquire the necessary wealth. You will achieve the necessary levels of successful prestige or whatever. Yeah. And this, that rags to riches area, like that hard work is its own reward, but also if you just work hard, it'll, it'll happen for you. You know, good yeah. things will come which of course is just not true. There are plenty of people who are working their asses off and can't make a livable wage and aren't able to provide for their families. And yet we are continuously told if people are in poverty or if people are not quite making it, it's because they're making poor choices. It's because they're not working hard enough. It's because something else. Yeah. But if they worked hard and worked smart, it would be just fine. And I think- Part of the tension we're experiencing right now economically and socially in our culture is is more and more people being like, wait a minute, I'm working hard and it ain't happening. I was promised <laughs> certain results that I'm not getting. You know, we now have, I think, two successive generations of Americans who are going to make less than their parents did. Yeah. And that is not a recipe for civility and social stability. You know, I've been reading a lot recently about work and reflecting on this essay that was written by John Maynard Keynes, who's kind of the the father of modern economics. In 1930, he wrote this essay, which was basically saying, if we continue to become more efficient, to use more mechanical things, to help with work, over time, we'll have to work less and less. And so again, he's writing in 1930 and his, yeah. his prediction was that by, by the end of the century, by the year 2000, everyone can just work 15 hours a week right. and we would still be able to produce everything that we need to produce and people have plenty. And so that obviously has not happened for the middle part of the 20th century. That really was the case. So between 1947 and 1973, the average hourly wage doubled on average, about a 2% growth per year. Mm -hmm. But from 1973 to 2013, the average hourly wage has fallen by 5%. So it was going up every year. And then basically for the entirety of our lifetime, it has been staying the same or going down. So all that's just to say, yeah, this idea that if everyone keeps working hard, if we all keep doing our part, each successive generation will be more successful or as successful as the prior generation. That is just not what is happening. And so I think that is something that we all have to kind of reckon with as we think about work and what it says about our value or our identity as people and as men. Yeah. I think what that creates, you know, those, those statistics create like we were saying, it's almost a guaranteed rate of failure, at least for someone to feel that emotionally, right? Because because you can literally be working harder and making less. And, you know, it's important to say, like when we say wages go down, it's relative to inflation. So right, right. the amount people make does not keep up with the, the rate that the cost of goods is going up. And so while people may be getting a raise, like, well, I made 50,000 last year and I'm making 51,000 this year, I'm making more, but this cost went up more than $1,000. So you actually lost, you're actually losing money. That's yeah. what we mean when we say wages drop 5% over that period, right? And so to have that experience of, working harder, doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and yet I'm falling into credit card debt, or I'm not saving the way I thought I could, or 
I had to spend more on healthcare expenses this year than I anticipated. Or my father retired when he was 65 and lived on his company pension for another 15 years, but I don't even have a pension and will probably have to keep working until I'm in my 70s if I'm lucky. Yeah. And all of that, I think, leads to, for men and women, problems. But again, particularly as pertains to the conversation we're having around men, it does create a very significant crisis, not only a practical crisis of how do I find the money to pay for what I need to pay for for me and my family, but also what kind of a person am I? What kind of a man am I? What's wrong with me from a masculinity standpoint that I am doing, I thought, everything I was supposed to do, but falling short. Right, And right. that's where it turns into, like, I'm a failure, something's wrong with me, shame, 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 guilt, 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 and we're often running with anxiety, depression, and the associated behaviors that come from that, that we see in terms of men, in terms of, like, health outcomes, suicide rates, violence, and other things. I think a lot of those behaviors are born out of this sense of of disillusionment and failure and an existential crisis that in large part come from failure at work. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it also is related to the anger at other groups of people mm-hmm. in terms of like, oh, it's because women are in the workplace. That's why right. I can't support my family. It's the immigrants are coming in, right? It's because of everybody else is taking our jobs. And that is causing us to to not be able to support our families, i.e. not be able to be men, not feel masculine enough because we don't we're not able to provide in this way that we've been told that we're supposed to. Uh, And I think that is at the root of a lot of that anger that plays out in the society in different ways. These are institutional issues, not really individual issues. But when it's happening to you, it feels like you're a failure. Yeah, for sure. The pain of not being able to work and support one's family is real. And I think it's important for us to have compassion for how hard that is and how painful it feels. And also to make it clear that taking that and turning it into lashing out at other people, other groups of people, is misplaced and inappropriate. It's not the fault of any other immigrant group or minority group that we're not able to have the jobs that we want to have or make the money we want to have or feel like we're supposed to have. When you have like institutional and political systems in place that are creating these negative outcomes for people to the benefit of the pick a number one, two, three, four, five percent at the top where more and more wealth is getting concentrated. These policies and procedures are put in place with such subtlety and deafness at times. It makes it very difficult for those who are truly at fault for this to be blamed for it. And those who are truly at fault for this are very good at providing, oh, but here are the people that you should be upset with. It's yeah. these people massing at the border. It's these women who are working outside the home. And so it's a combustible atmosphere when you have people who are rightfully feeling angry, sad, frustrated, disillusioned, experiencing a sense of failure, and are rightfully angry about it and are looking for a place to to direct those feelings. Yeah. I think it's important to note, as we as we try to on this podcast, it is almost exclusively men who are responsible for these decisions. Yeah. <laughs> and it is to the benefit of them and the people who put them in those positions of power. 
we as men have no one to blame but the other men around us. But I think it's time for us to start looking at what are the real narratives around masculinity at work and what are the real narratives around what is fair economically for everyone. Yeah. Well, I do think pretty much every political campaign, if a political candidate just got up and said, jobs, 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 we're going to get you jobs. Everyone's going to have a job. We got good jobs. My campaign is 100% about giving everyone jobs. That is an issue that everyone is yeah. like, yeah, great. We need we need jobs. We need better jobs. We need better paying jobs. We need better benefits. Just as an example, like Donald Trump went to coal country and was like, we're going to save all the coal jobs. You know, and right. It's like people are like, yeah, we need those jobs. Like, absolutely. We'll vote for you because we got to have the job. The job thing becomes a kind of shorthand for being able to have a decent, basic life where you have some measure of economic security and know that you're going to have a place to live and food to eat. In our society, the only way to have that is with jobs. Right. And so when we say like, we need jobs, we need better jobs. That's just a shorthand way of saying like, we just want to have enough to live. (laughs) Right. We don't have like a socialist structure like other places in the world where we provide for people the basics, even if they're not working. (laughs) And so if you don't have a job in our culture, you just starve. That's, that's our, that's our model. And I guess, you know, I'll just say for myself, like I, I grew up with the sense that if I went to college, got a degree, worked hard and was smart, I would have a job that would support me and my family. And I have not found that to be the case. Like I I don't, I have went to college, a good college. I got a, got a degree. I did well in college. I got graduate degrees. I got work experience. I've done lots of things. And no one is giving me a job that will pay my bills. So I do feel angry about that. And I feel there's something wrong with me, but also I feel like there's something wrong with why was I told that this was the expectation or this would be what happens. Now, I also have a lot of privilege. I mean, part of the reason I had that expectation to begin with is because I'm already a you know straight white man. And so- of course, if a straight white man has a college degree and is basically competent, he should be able to find a job and make a living. It's easier for him than for lots of other people. But I have not found that to be the case. And there's a lot of hurt that goes along with that. Yeah, no no doubt about it. I think that the disillusionment that comes from the, the incongruency between what we were told or the messages we received about if you do A, B, and C, then you will get the following good results. And then doing A, B, and C, <laughs> not getting the good results. And it's like, am I to blame for this? Is the system to blame for this? It's very difficult to resolve that sense of disillusionment, failure, anger, frustration, because it isn't just one thing, but it's enough things that like are potentially internal. There's something wrong with me and potentially external. It's the system in our society, we can't seem to gain enough traction to make any real changes. And until then, I think we will continue to have disillusioned, sad, and angry men who are feeling like failures. And unfortunately, I think some of those will try to do the work to resolve that and make the best of it and grow as people and survive. And some people, some of those men are are, are already turning to more and more extreme places of 
violence and dissent and other types of behaviors that are, are destructive to themselves and, and others. Yeah. I really enjoyed this book called Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but it's a really interesting reflection. And, and part of what he talks about is that so many of the jobs that exist in our current society are essentially useless and worthless jobs that like don't really need to be done. They're not really contributing anything. And a lot of those jobs are the ones that pay pretty well. <laughs> like the the jobs that are that we actually need people to really do to like run the society tend to not pay that well. And a lot of the jobs that pay really well are basically useless and don't really contribute anything. And so he sort of lays out the two different kinds of pain that you sort of also touched on because there's people who are like, I have a job that pays enough money, but I know that the work that I do is basically useless and worthless and makes no difference. And if everyone stopped doing this job, nothing would really change. you know. Um, and that kind of pain, that's a kind of pain that goes along with that. And then there are other people who work for in things that are really valuable and important that need to be done that are really helpful to individuals or to the society, but they don't pay enough money for people to really live on. And so that's mm -hmm. another kind of mm -hmm. pain. You can either have one or the other. You can have like a sense of meaning and purpose, but not enough money, or you can have the money, but no meaning and purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the expectation to have both of those things just means everybody's unhappy all the time, you know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. except for that, whatever 0.1% of the people that have both, which I think is not many. So there's just one part of this book that I wanted to just read because I think I mentioned it on a prior episode and you were like, what? But basically, one of the things he says in here is there's been an enormous number of surveys, studies, and ethnographies of work over the course of the entire 20th century. And that entire body of research can be summarized with the following two things. But, and this is true both for blue collar and white collar workers. One, most people's sense of dignity and self-worth is caught up in working for a living. And two, most people hate their jobs. So this goes on to say, in well over 100 studies in the last 25 years, workers have regularly depicted their jobs as physically exhausting, boring, psychologically diminishing, personally humiliating, and unimportant. But at the same time, they want to work because they are aware that at some level, work plays a crucial role in the psychological formation of human character. So again, we have this sense that we absolutely have to work. It's essential to who we are, to character building, to being men, even though it mostly makes us miserable. It's just a, a lot of pain that is caused by trying to live up to those expectations. Yeah, that's a very powerful quote. Nailed it. Yeah, I think for a lot of men, and certainly for me, there's the work to resolve the sense of shame that comes from from not meeting the expected results. Yeah. And that can be from someone who who is outwardly successful and, you know, relative to other families doing well. A sure. person who is upper class can have that sense of disillusionment and failure again just emotionally in the same way as someone who is barely keeping their head above water and not able to keep up with their credit card debt right those are two very different situations in terms of like what they're experiencing practically and logistically 
but the emotions can often be very sim- similar in terms of the what is wrong with me that I'm not hitting the mark that I was expected to hit. Yeah. And that is really difficult work to do. And and for me, it, it was mostly around shame. You know, like yeah. I thought I would be in a better position in terms of my emotional growth. I thought I would be in a better position in terms of my financial portfolio. I thought I would be in a better position in terms of my career trajectory. Like you could pick almost any area of achievement and success. And I felt like I had fallen short in pretty much everyone. Where honestly, outwardly, that would probably surprise a lot of people to hear. Because sure. again, like I'm a homeowner and I have a happy family. And yeah, it it took me three degrees before I figured out what I wanted to do, but I'm on a good career track and I'm not in any significant debt. And right, but and yet still that feeling of failure and that there's something wrong with me for not being in a better position is very is very real a very real experience for me that I'm still working on resolving. Yeah. Part of the process for me has been trying to get outside of those expectations around work in a way that allows me to see that I'm good enough just the way I am. My value is not defined by my productivity or by what I'm able to acquire And I think so much in our society and so much of our understanding of masculinity cuts against that and says, no, it's not enough just to be yourself. You have to do these things, accomplish these things, have this kind of job, make this kind of money in order to be acceptable, in order to be valuable. You're not inherently valuable just as a human being. You have to prove that in some way. And yeah, that's a part of the work that you were talking about is trying to understand how to make sense of that and experience that in a way that's disconnected from those social expectations around work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, should we move on to our closing segment here? Let's pick some chucks. (laughs) Picking chucks. Picking teams, as everybody knows, is our little game to close out the pod where we picture ourselves on the playground in those middle school days of yore where we uh, pick our favorites, or the best of whatever category we're uh, choosing for this particular episode. Once we've made a pick, the other person cannot pick that. This week's topic is Chucks. Best Chucks. We're making the best team of Chucks. All right. You want heads or tails? Uh, I'm going to go heads. Heads it is. Yes, finally. (laughs) All right. Who are you picking? So for my first Chuck, I'm taking... What to me has always been like a mythical item that is just really scary. Mm -hmm. And when properly used, just seems like super intimidating. And I have had some of these in my hands and immediately hurt myself when I had them. But there's a part of me that someday hopes to master the art of the nunchuck. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going with nunchucks. Nunchucks. My number one pick. Because whenever I see like in a movie or a TV or a couple times in real life, somebody whipping around those nunchucks, like I am just, I'm in awe. I'm enthralled. I can't take my eyes off of them. I'm a little bit afraid. Like I said, I have had on occasion uh, the ability to like have some, some sort of amateurish nunchucks and immediately started whipping them around and hit myself in the face. But one day I aspire to, 
maybe it's an alternative timeline in the multiverse where I am a nunchuck master. <laughs> and um, I just, it would be really exciting to me to be good at nunchucks. So yeah, I can see that. I'm taking nunchucks. I definitely went through a period in my adolescence where I went through a kind of a ninja obsessed mm-hmm. phase. Yeah. And, and there was a store in a mall area where my mom would go to shop that had like nunchucks and throwing stars and all manner of like weaponry. And so when I would like go shopping with her and then be like, I'm just going to go look at something. And then I would go and like look at all the ninja weapons yeah. and daydream about my future life as a ninja assassin, you know? Mm-hmm. So now, I got really good at making the paper Chinese stars. Mm-hmm. The thro- yeah. the throwing star throwing I stars yeah I say Chinese stars I don't know if they're really <laughs> Chinese or we were just like terribly uninformed back in our early eighties childhood and it was just yeah. you know but I feel like they were called Chinese throwing stars but that you could fold them with the paper I got really good at in class when I was supposed to be learning getting pieces of paper and making Chinese throwing stars and then throwing them which I may or may not have gotten in trouble for at various points in time. I mean, you definitely did. I had a friend in school who used to take like a a sewing needle and wrap the end of it with like the dull end with yarn and then shoot it out of a drinking straw. It's like a little blow dart and it would like, you know, it would stick in the wall or stick in your foot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And I was like, and I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. I was like, man, you, you really just going around shooting blow darts at people. And I'm like, it's amazing that no one lost an eye. Yes. I definitely had some throwing stars with needles in them at the point that were then sort of reinforced with tape Mm -hmm. that had like, they had some heft to them and definitely could definitely draw blood. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think anybody was going to die, but eyes were definitely uh, under attack. Like, you know, you'll put, You'll put somebody's eye out with one of those. Yeah, like absolutely. A hundred percent true. <laughs> Never did it. <laughs> but certainly Never put anyone's have. eye out, but it was in play. But it your pick play. of nunchucks is not reflective of that. It's reflective of your desire to connect with the true meaning of martial arts as like a self-defense and meditative activity for absolutely, peaceful living. Yes. For, for peaceful living. It definitely yeah. connects to the ninja craze. Of of the mid eighties, I don't know. It did it did feel like a real thing. Like all of a sudden, ninjas were a thing. I don't know if it came from a Bond movie or what, but yeah, yeah, there was something about or like GI Joe had a couple of ninja characters, but all of a sudden it was like they were this alternative form of you know weaponry and and an assassin. Yeah, it captured the imagination of the... absolutely did. For a while, for sure. That's what it's rooted in. But yes, ultimately, 100% (laughs) for peaceful, meditative martial arts. Mm. Non-violent, defensive purposes only. Absolutely. All right. All right. Well, I'm going to take, for my first pick, Chuck E. Cheese's. Yes. I'm not picking the character Chuck E. Cheese. I'm taking the the restaurant concept. Yes. The restaurant Chuck E. Cheese's because I love that place when I was a kid. I spent so much time there. I had such a good time playing the, uh, the skeet ball and the, and getting in the ball pit and playing all the games and they had good food. 
was like all you could drink. You could just get refills on sodas. And it was just such a great like special occasion place uh, for me as a kid was Chuck E. Cheese's. So I, I have a lot of good memories of going to birthday parties. And I have a very specific like taste memory of the what the icing on the Chuck E. Cheese's birthday cake tasted like. <laughs> like I can just put myself there and I can like almost taste it on my lip. It's a very strong sense memory for me. So I got to have Chuck E. Cheese on my team. Yeah, I can't say I know a lot about the character of Chuck E. Cheese. Like is does does is there a lore? Does he have a background that you're aware of? Yeah, I did a little research on Chuck E. Cheese at one point. I can't remember why. Did we talk about him in a previous episode? Yeah, it was like Chuck E. Cheese originally was a rat, not a mouse. Mm, okay. And um, and it was like a basically it, it began because some guy made these animatronic animals and they one of them kind of looked like a rat. And so they made that the mascot. And then later they changed it to a mouse and later they, you know, developed this whole personality around it. But it was basically the original sort of spark for it was the uh, this these animatronic characters that would play music. That to me was the least interesting part about Chuck E. Cheese's, but it seems like that's like what the original vision of it was, was around this music part of it. So I mostly love the video games, all the classics like Tron and Miss Pac-Man and what was the one uh, with the car, like Spy? Spy vs. Spy? There was like a driving one. Oh, Spy Hunter. Spy Hunter, yes. 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 That was always a fun one. All right, what are you going with next for Chucks? I'm going for an American hero. One of the greatest aviators of all time, Chuck Yeager. <laughs> Chuck Yeager. All right. Back in the days when men were men. Yes. And they got into miniature rockets with wings and broke the sound barrier, which mm -hmm. Chuck Yeager was the first person to break the sound barrier. Yes. He hit Mach 1.06, about 700 miles an hour in 1947. So Oof. we've talked a lot about like how in our lifetime, I mean, that's prior to our lifetime, 1947, but in our <laughs> just lifetime- barely. Just barely the Cold War was a part of it. And so right, like right. Chuck Yeager, just a hero, an American hero of the Cold War era where so much of it, so much of the competition with the Soviet Union was around like technological advances and aerospace was a big part of that. Space and race. So, yeah. Yeah. And even though Chuck Yeager was never a um, an astronaut, he was one of the most important test pilots for the Air Force and for NASA. And so he was an early pioneer when it came to the aviation advances that came in the 50s and 60s that then sort of led to the historic achievements of the space program in the 60s and 70s in terms of, you know, getting to the moon and, and all those sorts of things. Well, that that's the main way I know who Chuck Yeager is, is from the movie, The Right Stuff. The Right Stuff. Yeah, which is and a great. It, it was a, you know, which is a movie about movie. the beginnings of the space program at NASA. Right. And it's like, but for some reason, one of the characters in the movie is Chuck Yeager, who was not an astronaut. Yes. And so it's like he was so important that they put him in the movie about astronauts, even though he wasn't an astronaut. Right. And there's that great scene at the end of the movie with him walking back from a 
after a crash, like walking up the runway with flames and smoke behind him in his flight suit. And it's like, yeah, this guy is a fucking, that's what a man is right there. You know, mm-hmm. Chuck yeah. Yeager. Yeah. An American hero when it comes to uh, military success and, you know, aerospace advances. Great Chuck to have on my team. Yeah, that's a good Chuck. I do find in general that when it when it comes to famous people named Chuck, they're mostly terrible. I I, I didn't find a lot of good Chucks. Yeah. Uh, no. Out there. So, yeah. I if your name is Chuck and you're listening to this podcast, go out there and do something good <laughs> do something. and be a good human because you you can eat the 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 best Chuck out there. The door is open. We're yeah. still waiting. There's for a like low a bar. Truly, yeah, there's a lot of terrible Chucks. There's a lot of terrible Chucks out there. And there's uh, a lot of like influential or culturally significant Chucks who were not good people. Yeah, that's what I mean. In terms of famous people that you would know named Chuck, mostly Mm -hmm. are bad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, seems that way. Well, I'm going to pick the only other person other than your pick I want to have on my team, and that's Chuck Taylor. Mm. But I'm not actually picking the person Chuck Taylor. I'm picking Converse All-Star Sneakers. Love it. Conversationally known as Chuck Taylor's mm-hmm. cultural icon, the cultural icon, Chuck Taylor shoes, which, you know, have been around. I don't know if you realize that those shoes were originally made in 1917. Whoa. I was going to guess thirties. So yeah. Yeah. Well, they were redesigned in 1922 mm. and that's when Chuck Taylor, the actual person, Chuck Taylor became, became a part of who was a, had been a basketball player you know, was involved in that redesign. And so the the basic style has been the same since 1922. Wow. Uh, which is kind of insane. A 100-year-old shoe. I had no idea. I'm picking it even though I have never owned a pair of Chuck oh, Taylors Oh, you never myself. had a pair of Chuck Taylors. No, because I the, the, the downside of the Chuck Taylor is they're very narrow and I have very wide feet. So I never could find one that I really was comfortable for me. But the reason I'm picking it is because I always just like had a thing for women wearing Chuck Taylors, you know, mm. like just as a, as like a female style thing. I just that always was, thought that, that was, was really that was cute. cool. Yeah. Uh-huh. I just thought like, man, that's if I went out and there was like a, a woman there wearing Chuck Taylors, even to this day, you're, you're interested. Like, I want to yeah. know more. I want to know that person. She seems mm-hmm. cool. That's a shoe choice that I feel like I can get behind. Mm-hmm. You're like a classic, but also you're sort of fun and have a sort of a sporty side, which I like. So, so yeah, I'm a fan of the, uh, of the style choice and, and people that I want to be around. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I, I always thought of it as like an old timey basketball shoe. Yeah. And then as we got into the more modern era of basketball in the like eighties and nineties, basketball shoes really evolved. And then, yeah, I feel like at some point it remained as a culturally relevant fashion choice. It wasn't just a, a, a men's basketball shoe. It was like a, a comfortable, cool shoe to wear still to this day. You'll see it in like different, different colors and all different sorts of. You can get them themed, like you can get a pride themed one that's like rainbow. I mean, they make right. them in every yeah. conceivable style and color. And so it's it's uh, yeah. it's iconic for sure. All right. Well, for my last Chuck, I'm going with my personal 
favorite type of laughter, mm. which is the chuckle. The chuckle. So I'm going with chuckle as my third choice. Yeah, I want nunchucks. I want Chuck Yeager. I want Chuck Yeager holding some nunchucks while chuckling. That's my team right there. It's just Chuck Yeager walking down the runway, flipping some nunchucks and just... He just had a little something funny come to mind and just started chuckling. Yeah, you know, he wasn't he wasn't giggling. He wasn't snickering. He's not it's not a big belly laugh. It's not a cackle. He's not snorting. Definitely not a guffaw. That would no, be too no, much no. for Chuck Yeager. Chuck Yeager doesn't it's guffaw. A, it's a chuckle. It's a, it's right. a quiet, subdued laughter. Nice. Uh, and it's something like clever and subtle that he's laughing at. Might even mm-hmm. be a little bit obscure. But it's funny and it's it's worth a chuckle. And that's sort of my favorite kind of laughter is like someone's made like a very clever, subtle observation. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, a little chuckle. Give yeah, me a chuckle. chuckle. That's All what right. I, I like. I mean, I you know, every now and then I love a good belly laugh with the best of them. And I'll certainly do a snort laugh from time to time. And uh, I've been known to giggle every now sure, and then. Sure, sure. Really, my like my comfort zone when it comes to laughter is like a good, clever observation that makes me chuckle. Yeah. So yeah, yeah you're I'm taking chuckle. You're a chuckler. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's a solid. That's a solid team. Mm-hmm. I think I'm gonna have to go for my last pick. Chuck on the shoulder. Ooh. The old Chuck on the shoulder. If you're really hyper masculine, then you can't like give a hug because mm-hmm. that would be like a little gay or a little effeminate, right. but you want to have some sort of a contact. You don't even, even a pat on the back, like mm-hmm. open hand would be too much. Right. But you just want to give a little, like just a chuck on the shoulder to just give a little bit of contact as a way of encouraging someone, telling them, Hey, good job. Chuck on the shoulder. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I got a lot of that. That was like a standard encouragement thing when I was a kid for like coaches and whatever to give you the, give you a little chuck on the shoulder Mm-hmm. If you did well uh, yeah. in a game or whatever. So more, more than a pat, less than a punch. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, and it's sort of an unusual place, you know, on the shoulder, but, but an intimate place, but not too intimate. Yeah. So, it's yeah. not like a hand on the small of the back, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, it's like a, it's like a nice, uh, manly check right. on the shoulder. When a hug would be too intimate, but just like, a a, a handshake too formal. Yeah. Or again, a pat on the shoulder, not enough. Chuck yeah. on the shoulder. So I think for me, my ideal team is Chuck E. Cheese wearing Chuck Taylors, giving me a chuck on the shoulder. <laughs> oh, that gave me more than a chuckle. So good job. Yeah. So I think those two, I think I think Chuck Yeager with nunchucks chuckling and Chuck E. Cheese with Chuck Taylors giving you a chuck on the shoulder. That's quality entertainment right there. How can I'm going to you... plug that into the AI graphic <laughs> generator and just that might be the that might be the image for this week's pod. Will yeah, be I think that would be a good AI, AI generator. Give me a give me a painting of Chuck E. Cheese wearing Chuck Taylor's giving Chuck Yeager a chuck on the shoulder as he what? plays with his nunchucks and it has a good chuckle. Yeah. Yes. Right, let's yes. see it. We're on to something. That's what AI is for. Is that's that, what it's for. That I right can't there. I can't do that. But <laughs> no human being would no spend their time do that. doing that 
but but you can get a computer to do it. Yes, so. absolutely. Well, we should bring this episode to a close. Please rate, review, subscribe, and send us an email at breakingdownmen at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Anything else you want to say before we close the episode, Jim? No. All right. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Breaking down men. Breaking down men.